Well, good morning, Hillview Bible Chapel. It's good to be here this morning again with you. If you'll open up your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. We're getting toward kind of the end of the timeline, if you will. I've entitled this message, excuse me, The Battle for the Human Heart. The Battle for the Human Heart. It's going to certainly go on in the passage that we're talking about today, but of course, as you know, it goes on around us all the time. Last week, we saw kind of that physical battle of Michael and Satan, and Satan being cast down and defeated, but then made war on the saints, and there was this kind of physical battle going on. This chapter deals with the heart, the battle for the human heart. And before we jump into this, I don't know, you know, this, this whole thing about prophecy is, you know, David David prayed. He said, you know, this is hard stuff, right? I mean, how many of you have sat there with uh, some of the teachings and gone, you know, they're a little wishy-washy sometimes. Uh, you remember I put that little, that little chart up there, and I, and I had them move left and right, and everybody's like, ooh, that's good. Well, that's because it's hard. Prophecy is hard. Um, you know, it's about the future, right? I, I wonder how many ever put, put together their Sweet 16, their bracket this year. Did anybody do that? I did, I did one. Um, I, I, did some, I did some checking, uh, and so thinking about predicting the future, because this, well, that's what it is, right? I mean, filling out your bracket is all about predicting what's going to happen. This is the correct final four percentages that got it right this year. So only, only 0.025% got it correct. So not very many. Matter of fact, in 2011 and 2013, zero people predicted the final four. It's kind of a difficult thing to predict the future, right? Here's my bracket. Yeah, zero. All those, all those cross-outs, all four of them, I was over. So my uh, good thing I didn't put a big wager on this one. Uh, but uh, so I didn't do so well. I was, I was zero for four on predicting the final four. So my bracket was pretty much destroyed after Baylor got beat early on. I predicted them last year. Woohoo! I won this year. Not so much. It's, uh, it's pretty tough predicting the future. But really, our lives are pretty centered around that, wouldn't you say? I mean, every time we go out, we do things, we are thinking about the future. You know, is, is this thing going to last? You know, can I get a better price tomorrow at a different store? Maybe, uh, maybe this style will be in, summer, in style this summer. Maybe not, you know. Um, is this thing going to go up in value for me tomorrow? You know, if the warranty expires, is this thing going to still work? You know, did I pick the right investments? I mean, we focus on the future a lot. So many decisions about who we are and about the future. And that's really why predicting the future is a difficult thing. And that's why Bible prophecy is very difficult. You know, I thought we'd take just a moment to think about that. Uh, When you think about Bible prophecy... It's all about the future. It's what's going to happen, why it's going to happen, who it's going to happen to. And uh, we are not so good at it, as I just showed you with my final four bracket. But what's amazing is the Bible is astronomically perfect, (laughs) correct. And they get it right. God got it right every time. Sometimes we don't understand how it fit together. But the biblical prophecy is different from our own. So the question might come, why is revelation so hard? I mean, it's prophecy. We know prophecies are filled. It's got to be easy. You know, we just read it, interpret it. Matter of fact, when I was in junior high, uh, you know, I had been a Christian all of 
I don't know, eight years, and I, I couldn't think of anything that I didn't have a good answer for in the Bible. I was, you know, pretty arrogant, I guess, and now I have a lot more questions, you know. But the reality is we, we have, pro- I mean, there's almost 300 prophecies that scholars say about just Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And, and yet all those have been fulfilled. There was a, there was a teacher, he was uh, Peter Stoner, he was chairman of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena College, and he was passionate about biblical prophecy. He took 600 of his students, and they took eight Eight prophecies about Jesus, where he was going to be born, that he was going to be born a virgin, uh, and the timing of his birth, various other things about his crucifixion. Eight pretty recognizable things. And they did some calculations, conservatively estimating, that for all those to be fulfilled as it was in the New Testament by the Lord Jesus, that, that it would have to be one over ten to the 17th power for all those to have been fulfilled. That's only eight one over, I can't really think about that kind of number because I'm not a mathematician, but this is what it looks like. It's a, it's, a, whoops, it's a quintillion, a little almost a quintillion for you math people. So that's a lot. Matter of fact, they did, some, they did kind of an analogy. They said, if you took a silver dollar and you, you filled the state of Texas with silver dollars, uh, this number, it would be stacked two feet high. And then someone would go in, mark one, you'd mix them all up and then send someone with a blindfold and go, can you get that one, please? That's, that's the chance of all those eight happening. Bible prophecy is so accurate, but we, not so much. And even, even when Jesus was here, and this is where it gets interesting, even when Jesus was on earth, we found that those who knew about those prophecies missed it especially even his very own, right? John the Baptist, who was prophesied to be the forerunner for Jesus, sent his apostles and said, hey, can you ask Jesus if he's the guy, if he's the Messiah? Because he just wasn't that sure. And the disciples, you remember, I mean, Jesus even opened the book in the beginning of Luke and said, hey, uh, you know, I'm fulfilling this in your ears today. And on the road to Emmaus, he said, all these things have to be fulfilled what was written about me in the Psalms and the prophets. And so it's very difficult because even those who knew him best did not understand how it was being fulfilled at that time. The disciples three times in John said, oh, I remember now, I remembered what he said and what was written about him. And they said, now it starts to make sense. So when we, when we take Revelation and we go, well, we're not really sure. It's because we're looking out in the future and God has given us a roadmap through Daniel and Ezekiel and all the prophets that we're going to look at and we have looked at, but it's challenging. It's difficult. I mean, even when we did the, the idea of the rapture, right? There was three different rapture events predicted, different timing, three different millennial events. You know, you math majors can put that all together and figure out all the combinations and go, there's a lot of different ideas out there. But, you know, we're steadfast in that this is pretty much universal. Jesus is coming back. He's going to come back. And we're going to see what's going to happen. And it's going to be a blessed thing for those who have known the Lord Jesus, but a terrifying thing for those who don't. And so as we go through and think about the future, Revelation even of itself gives 290 references that are traceable 
to the Old Testament. And so the combination of God's word, as, we, as you kind of wonder, why are we going back and forth to Daniel? Because these events are so intertwined because God is setting a roadmap that I think when we get to heaven, we're going to go, wow, that all makes sense. This all makes total sense. But now as we look to the future, we see the challenges that lie before us. So with that caveat to my sermon today, <laughs> that it's hard, I'm going to go into our chart here. If you look, we've, we've, we've seen the chart, what you have seen, things which are, and the things will, which will take place. We've been, we've been in this journey of the things which will be the future, and that's what, of course, most people believe Revelation is about the future. Um, as I was looking at this chart uh, this week, I noticed something. I don't know if you noticed anything. We're in Revelation chapter 14. I'm going to zoom in a little bit, see if you notice anything. It's missing. So I'm, I'm just going to close in prayer. And uh, <laughs> Lord, I just, no. No, so what we have here is a little vignette, if you will, an interlude, a parenthetical. So they kind of left it out of this middle. Maybe it was too narrow. Um, but it's a little interlude, and we've had a few of these. And so Revelation chapter 14 is an interlude, and because it's difficult to place exactly when this takes place. It's difficult to predict, but the events are going to happen. And so we're going to go through and look at those this morning. So I've outlined our battle for the human heart, our battle for humanity. We're going to look at again at the 144,000 in verses 1 through 5. We'll look at the three angelic messages, and then we're going to look at the harvests of the earth. So if you'll open your Bible to Revelation chapter 14, we'll begin with verse 1. Then I looked, there was a lamb standing on Mount Zion. With him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound cascading waters and like the rumblings of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing with their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who had not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths, for they are blameless." It's interesting as we think about these first fruits, these redeemed first fruits of the 144,000. You remember John, uh, excuse me, uh, James Armstrong. I think, I, yeah, James, there you go. <laughs> James Armstrong spoke in chapter 7. That was the first uh, part of the 144,000. He kind of talked about Revelation chapter 14 a little bit to help us understand who these are. And I really want to just go through a little bit about who these are in chapter 2 or excuse me, chapter 7, verse 3, we read that they're the servants of God, and uh, in this case, bond servants, really doulos, slaves. Okay, They're sealed and protected by God. We're not really sure if they were ever uh, killed, but it seems that the, the protection was both spiritual and physical, and so there's a special sealing and protection by God. And then, of course, we've there's 144,000. How do we get that number? 12,000 from each tribe. And, and, you know, there's a lot of people that'll say that number is not literal, that we should, it should, you know, represent a larger group. Um, I'll just say that in, in my thought about uh, Revelation and Scripture in general, I've, I, I heard someone say this, and I apologize, I don't know who said it, but they said, when Scripture shouts, we should shout. When Scripture is silent, we should stay silent. And when Scripture whispers, then we should whisper. 
And so I think this is a case where Scripture whispering, we have about 13 verses on this particular topic. So in general, I like to think that if it's possible that it could be a literal figure, you know, literal, literal thing, then I'll just, I'll just assume that it is. And with the understanding that there might, there might be something different figuratively involved. So I seem to accept the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. Uh, people will say, well, how do they know which tribe? And I think God can probably figure that out if he wanted that. <laughs> Just my thoughts. They're going to have the name of the Father. This is that ceiling that we talked about, right? The name of the Father and the, and the Lamb is going to be on their foreheads, that ceiling. And we're going to see a little bit from last week. Remember that number that the beast put on? So here we're going to start to see that battle, that antithesis of the Antichrist and then what God has done to prepare a way so that others might know him. They're going to sing a song, and again, it says, no one could learn the song because, except for the 144,000, and like, what does that mean? Like, we're not smart enough, other people that don't know, and I don't know, we just don't know. They, they, no one else could learn it. That's what the passage says. And of course, these are the ones redeemed, and their first fruit, meaning there's more to come. That, that there's going to be people, and we've seen that over and over during this time, that will trust the Lord Jesus despite the deception of the Antichrist. There will be people who will trust in the Lord. And the 144,000 could be part of that along with the witnesses. It says they're undefiled virgins. You know, I, I don't know. I, I think it could be spiritual that they are free from sin. And, and, uh, and, and, but it also could mean literally that they were male celibates who, who had not had relations or intimacy with women. We're, we're not really sure. Um, and then... They follow the lamb, and finally, there's no lie. So we have a list, and that's kind of why I laid this out, because trying to read more into this than is necessary, we just know exactly who these people are listed out here. We know what they're doing, and so I think we can take some examples of that, I think. For number one, I like the idea of following the lamb. I mean, what a, what a privilege it is for us to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of false places that we can go follow, but these 144,000 follow the Lamb. Whether that's a literal thing, we know that Jesus is going to come out on Mount of Olives, and I think the 144,000 will probably usher in the millennial with him, you know, physically. Uh, but what a blessing we have to spiritually follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And so I think that's a remarkable thing. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he is the way. And so you taking this example of the 144,000 and following the Lamb. Uh, there's a lot to follow. There's a lot that demands our attention, our desire. And that's why I say this battle for the human heart is going on around us all the time. They want our attention. And yet the 144,000 were captivated and following the Lamb. And so as we think about the 144,000, let's move on to that first angelic message. There were three total angelic messages in this passage. The first one in chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. And then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who has made heaven and earth, the seas and the springs of water. Uh, of course, this word to uh, gospel is, is, you've probably heard this before, and I, I'll butcher the pronunciation, I have to ask J.D. Ugalesio, 
which, uh, of course, we get our word evangelism. And so that good news that's going forth, the eternal gospel, this isn't something, a message of, of passing or, well, it's good today, gone tomorrow, the eternal gospel. And it, it appears that this angelic messenger is going out before the destruction, the, the wrath of God is going to be poured out saying, there is hope, there is peace, there is a future by trusting the eternal God. Fear God and give him glory. Fear God, give him glory, and then that battle for the human heart to worship, worship the creator. I'm amazed at how much John goes back to Genesis to pull from that story, the one who created the earth and said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good, the creator, the sustainer. And he says, when we know the creator, we want to worship him. We want to give him glory, worship the creator. And of course, he's countering that message of the beast. This goes back to Revelation chapter 13 and, and verse 3. You see, you know, that verse 4, they worship the dragon, which was Satan, we learn. For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, worshiped the beast. They worshiped the dragon, they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against him? The battle for the human heart is going to be so of evident during this time. And the angelic message is saying, don't worship the beast. And we're going to see the consequences of that here in just a minute. This idea of worship, of course, you see this marveling at the beast and worshiping the beast who is like the beast. What a horrible message. What a horrible message that the Satan is going to proclaim. But many, many will be deceived. Many, many will be bowing at the feet and taking the mark of the beast and turning their back on the Lamb, turning their back on Jesus as the Messiah. The, uh, the word worship, again, I'll, I'll butcher the, the word proskuneo, means to where we get that word prostrate, prostrate, right? We prostrate ourselves before someone. I was looking at, I don't know if you remember, uh, I don't know which of the, you know, Romancing the Stones, all those, uh, what was the name of the movie series, um, where they were searching for the Holy Grail. And, and remember, he said, only the penitent shall pass, if you saw that movie. And, and he's thinking as he's going through, because one or two other already been killed, and he's only the penitent, only the penitent. Finally, he realizes, oh, a penitent person is humble. So he gets down on his knees, and the guillotine passes him by, and he's saved. The penitent, the humble. We come before and worship the one because he's the creator, and we fall on our knees and say, he's worthy. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Jesus is worthy. I love what Charles Spurgeon, he said, Worship is the highest elevation of the spirit and yet the lowliest prostration of the soul. The highest elevation of our spirit. Our spirit is, highest, is exalted when we worship the one who's worthy. But when we think about ourselves, it's just lowly. <laughs> We don't like to think about that, but that's kind of the difference in worshiping, and that's the angelic message for the first angelic message. The second one and the third one, we're going to be, begin to see as, as the angels pronounce what's going to happen to the world around them who reject the worship of God. And another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. 
Babylon, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar, they carried the children of Israel off to captivity for many, many years. And so there was a lot of uh, prophecy about Babylon. Matter of fact, if we go back to Isaiah chapter 21, Isaiah is predicting that eventually Babylon is going to fall. And we have this near prophecy of eventually Babylon will fall, but that also far prophecy that looks forward to the time when Babylon, that is represented by the kingdom of the beast, is going to be defeated by God himself. And so we see here, now behold, he comes with a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs, and he said, fallen, fallen is Babylon. So we, we know that this idea of Babylon falling is not only a near prophecy of a prediction of what actually took place already, but it's looking forward to the time when the Lord Jesus will conquer everything about Babylon. We'll see it again in Revelation chapter 18 when the final endings of the of chapter of, of the book of Revelation is culminating. And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Fallen, fallen. The gods, excuse me, all the images of our gods are shattered in Isaiah. But he's going to end up defeating. Really, Babylon was all about idolatry, right? Time and time again, the Bible equates idolatry to sin. And that was the problem with Babylon. That was the problem with what was going on. In John's day, Rome was the pagan power, and so they were thinking of that, perhaps, as he thought about the message of Babylon. And so we see also, even in Jeremiah, as he was prophesying, you see how this this word at the end of chapter 8, made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Interesting, we see it over and over again in Scripture. I did a little study on this idea of sexual immorality as it's tied to our spiritual identity, as it's tied to our, our, our righteousness. And over and over again, the Bible uses these very difficult words that we don't like to talk about. I mean, you see in, in red here, played the whore, played the whore whoredom. It's, it's almost like, oof, I don't really want to speak that word. And yet the Bible is clearly over and over again equating this idea of rampant sexual immorality with what's going on in the human heart. What's happening in our inward soul when we give way to the the desires of the world around us and and allow our hearts to be captured. And Jeremiah is prophesying to these people that are in Babylon looking forward to the hope that they will be released and they're committing adultery. What? With stones and trees. They're, they're committing adultery by worshiping these gods. Faithless one, faithless one, adulteries. And so that, that, that equation, that equating of, of sexual immorality with spiritual rebellion is very clear. That's one of the reasons why the 144,000 remaining sexually pure, sometimes they think like that, that means spiritual purity, and it, and it very well might. Jeremiah is certainly talking about to Judah and Israel's sin and their eventually judgment and exile to Babylon. It's a tough message. It's a tough message that the third angel is going to have to talk about because it's, it's going to affect so many people. Not only in the end times, but I think we're going to see that it's going to affect people when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to rapture his church. So let's read the third angelic message, the mark of the beast. And another 
A third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in its image. Or anyone who receives the mark of its name, this calls for the endurance of the saints, from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labor since their works follow them. This is, this is about as dark a message as you can find in the Bible. And I know, you know some, some might say, well, yeah, this is, this is though in the Great Tribulation. If you take the mark of the beast, this idea of eternal punishment is you know, not about me. Um, but, you know, the Lord, the Lord is a jealous God. Have you ever heard that phrase, God is a jealous God? It's not like he's jealous because, you know, you're off doing things and he, you know, or, you know this, this, this physical jealousy that we have and that's rooted in our human heart is, is most often considered bad, right? But God is a jealous God because he wants our worship. He desires our worship. He demands our worship as the creator. Early on in Exodus chapter 20, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God. In Isaiah, Isaiah writes, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory, I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. He demands our worship. He's our creator, our sustainer. He carefully keeps and protects what is his, and this divine jealousy, this divine jealousy is going to demand judgment. And this is what these verses are about. Those who decide not to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and follow the Lamb and take the mark of the beast, it's eternal. Eternal punishment. Their torment will go up forever and ever. As you might say, well, yeah, this is, this is revelation time. This is like the beast is going to be tossed in and somebody's, I'm not going to take the mark, so it's not going to be me. And so as we go back through Scripture, we see that time and again, the Bible is going to talk about eternal punishment. You know, we're not a, we're not a big uh, health, fire, and brimstone church. We don't do that a lot. Uh, but the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear. And, and there's just a few verses. I won't go into all of these because there's many more that speak of the judgment that's going to happen. If we look at these ideas of eternal contempt and punishment and destruction, eternal, eternal, it's just, the words fail to describe the magnitude of what's going to happen for those who haven't placed their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's catastrophic. It's destructive. If you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, it's disastrous, I thought, tragic, cataclysmic. There's really there's no easy way to say the challenge that's going to come to those who haven't put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus. So I urge you today, if you haven't had a time 
to trust the Lord Jesus and to accept the sacrifice that he did, the scripture says now is the time. Now is the appropriate time. And if you wait, it's, it's not going to be very good. Judgment is swift and sure and eternal. But even in the midst of these, and of course there's many other verses, but even in the midst of these verses, there, there's still hope. And, and even in a few of these, there's this idea of everlasting life to those who trust him. Everlasting life for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so this, this just juxtaposition, this, this contrast of what the Antichrist offers when you, when you worship the beast that leads to destruction and what the Lord Jesus offers if you trust and worship him. Eternal life for all, eternal damnation, and eternal hope with the Lord Jesus Christ. I really love these last uh, couple of verses in this section where it talks about blessing for the saints. This calls for the endurance of the saints. Interesting, I looked this up. Endurance is about seven times in Revelation. Once kind of in the introduction, four times in the part where we're talking to the churches. They say endure, endure, he who endures to the end. And then three, twice actually in the later part. So once in chapter 14 and once in chapter 13 where it says calls for the endurance of the saints. For those alive during the great tribulation, uh, it's going to be a difficult time. But there is hope. There is hope. But look at, look at what God, God says about those who keep his commands and faith. Blessed. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. We don't really talk about martyrdom too much. Really, it's in the New Testament. I mean, there's some few chapters that talk, here, verses here and there that talk about martyrdom. But actually, it's pretty, pretty apparent in Revelation that there's going to be significant numbers who are martyred for their faith. Blessed. Blessed are those who who die in the Lord from now on. What an amazing concept. They will rest from their labors. We talk about rest. Uh, you know, people talk, ah, you die, and then, you know, they eat up your bones. But God says when we're, we perish, our body is going to fade away, absent from the body and present with the Lord in his eternal rest. What a blessing that is. I love that. This, this first, really, verse, as I thought about keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. I mean, trust and obey. You ever heard that hymn? Trust, trust and obey. I mean, that, what, a, what, a class, what, a, what a key phrase to understanding what God wants. Trust, and when we trust, we follow his commands and we obey. What a remarkable thing. All for them will trust and obey. There's actually, you know, we, we talked about the sevens. I mean, how many times have we talked about seven this, seven seals, trumpets, bowls? There's actually one we didn't talk about. I just kind of learned this. There's seven blessings. Maybe someone talked about it. I can't remember. Seven blessings in Revelation. Um, so two of them are based kind of on, on our, on what we, you know, what we did our foundation of Revelation. One, blessed is the one who reads, allows, and hears, and keeps this prophecy. And then in in 22, blessed is the one who keeps the word of this prophecy. So, so two of these, kind of on the, on the beginning and the end, tell us, hey, you should read this and you should keep it. And you'll be blessed. And that's one of the reasons why we decided to study Revelation, because there's a blessing in this. But here we see, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Most people don't think of dying as a blessing. Uh, I think in the Great Tribulation, 
What a blessing that'll be when they are absent from that persecution and in the presence of the Lord. Sometimes we don't think of that ourselves, but that's, that's what God has for those who have trusted him. I'm sure we'll see some more of these blessings here in the next few chapters. So now we go to the harvest. Let's read from verse, excuse me, read from verse uh, 14. Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and the one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. There's, there's very little doubt that this person, this son of man, is in fact the Lord Jesus. The, the parallels are just too clear. Matter of fact, if you look here at three different times, he uses the word cloud, and of course, we're very familiar with that. In, in, uh, you know, we've talked about that in Matthew chapter 24 in the early portions of uh, Revelation, that he comes on a cloud. He's, you might even call him, some people have called him, oh, he's the cloud rider. <laughs> Jesus, the cloud rider, is going to come in clouds. We see it even all the way back in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. We've already read this. I saw in the night vision, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came the Son of Man, ancient of days, Daniel chapter 7. We already said in Matthew chapter 24 that the Son of Man will come. You will see them on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then, of course, as I said, in Revelation chapter 1, the introduction, behold, he is coming on the clouds. And so this cloud rider is, is no doubt Jesus. Now the question that many have is, is this a single harvest or is this, you know, two harvests? And um, before we jump into that, why don't we just read the second harvest a little bit. So let's go into continue what I consider the second harvest, the angel's harvest of the earth in chapter 14, verse 17. Then another angel who also had a sharp sickle came out of the temple in heaven, and yet another angel who had authority over fire came from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth, because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth, and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridle for about 180 miles. Well, again, we see that for sure, regardless of what the first harvest looks like, this harvest is one of a harvest of judgment and wrath. This is undoubtedly when God is going to pour out perhaps the bowls, that when God pours out his wrath of his second coming and, and defeats the world, and so we have this idea of harvest of the earth, one harvest or two. I, I think it's two harvests. Most people say it's two. You know, some people try to say the first one is different. If, if it is two harvests, then what harvest and when is, is a question. There are different views on this on the first harvest. harvest. I think you know, pre-tribulation will say this is kind of that Jesus, that final harvest before the ushering in the millennium when he comes on a cloud and he gathers, whether those are the martyrs or those are the, the Jews that are saved, takes them and then brings them back as he defeats his enemies. 
Um, others think that perhaps it's the rapture. And, and honestly, we're not sure because we're not getting very much information about when this takes place. But I think based on the, the visuals of him coming on a cloud, we know that Jesus is coming in power and great glory at this time for this harvest. And then harvest number two, um, you know, there is no doubt what this is about, that Christ will return with his army in the clouds, the white horse, the one who will defeat those who have come out against him. The final defeat of the judgment of God being un- unleashed. And we'll see in the next two chapters the bowls of God's wrath being poured out on the beast, the dragon, and the false prophet. All those who worship the beast. And so, you know, as we look at this last verse again, these last few sections, we see again, we remember I read in Joel chapter 3, which is very clear language about the day of the Lord. In Joel chapter 3, you know, it just says that the harvest is ripe. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come tread for the winepress is full. The vats are overflowing, which to me means that the wickedness that will be around the earth at that time will be so monstrous that God's wrath is going to be poured out won't be a very good time. Interesting, he says the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And I think there's a parallel there. The Valley of Jehoshaphat is similar to the Kidron Valley. If you look at this, this picture, you can kind of looking from Jerusalem off to the Mount of Olives, off to your right in the, in the Temple Mount. And this Kidron Valley perhaps is where this Valley of Jehoshaphat will lead. And it goes for hundreds of miles. So it makes it clear that perhaps there's going to be a stream there that, that will overflow with the blood from the great battle that's going to take place where the Christ will defeat the armies of the Antichrist and the armies of the world. Put your sickle in, for the harvest is ripe. Jesus is going to tarry. He's tarrying because he wants all to come to repentance and to trust in him, but there will come a time when he will put a stop. He will put a stop to the worship of the Antichrist. When we see this comparison, this battle for the human heart, we can see there are a lot of, a lot of this comparisons, right? Good and bad, false and true. But, but this, this caricature of the Antichrist will take on some elements that, that the Lord Jesus Christ represents. He'll do wonders and miracles. He's going to be a commander of armies. He'll have power, albeit from Satan. He'll have authority from Satan. There will be those who will follow him and put the mark on their forehead and their hands. And that's why people will follow and worship the, the Antichrist because he has so much in common with the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not the true Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, this choice for worship, he wants your heart. And there's, there's clear character, character traits that we should have as worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, these are, these are just taken from this passage alone of how we worship, how we come before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, you are the one, you are worthy. And you know, these are, these are things, these are things we do, and, and of course, there are efforts that we make, you know, obedience, and, and those are certainly important things that we do. I like what Francis Chan said. He says, isn't it a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate? <laughs> There's no, there's no exaggerating the power and nature of God. And that's why he's worthy of what we see before him. 
But really, he, you know, he, he wants our obedience. He wants us to be ministering in the church and taking care of those around us. But really, he wants worshipers. These are outward duties. You know, he wants worshipers. Do you remember, do you remember the woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4? We had that maybe a year ago or so. And Jesus said this. He said, the hour is coming, is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the, jo- the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He wants our hearts, our attention, our focus. He wants us to worship. And there's a battle that's going on for the human heart. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, God wants worshipers before workers. Indeed, the only acceptable workers are those who have learned the lost art of worship. Only, our, our works are only as valuable as the worship that we give to God, the glory that we give to God. As we think about the battle for the human heart, I hope that you have placed your faith and trust and are willingly bowing before the God of the universe and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't, the devastation, the the catastrophe that awaits those who are going to go through the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ is is unfathomable, but he's offered hope through his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word, the challenging passages that deal with your judgment. Father, you are a just God and demand worship. You are a just God and demand righteousness. And apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot attain we, are, we fall short. But with our trust in the one who has saved us and redeemed us, the lamb, we trust him and we follow him. And our hearts overflow in worship. In his name we pray. Amen. Without f- um, afterwards. Um, without further ado, Arlena. I wasn't expecting to be down there. It would be a lot easier to be down there. So excuse my nerves. Uh, my name is Arlena. And then it's, it's elevated now. <laughs> that was done probably for, for myself. <laughs> but today I stand, oh, oh, I go to Grace Bible Chapel, in case anyone doesn't know, in San Jose, uh, California, because there's one in Richmond. Apparently, today I stand a new creation in Jesus Christ because I profess that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. Second Corinthians 517. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. I wasn't able to say this before. I lived a life of lust, lies, adultery, alcoholism, slander. And I saw sin as a normal thing to do. Just, it was a part of my life, and I didn't think anything of it. My parents were both hippies growing up, so they always had a very open opinion about what religion was and background, or God. My mom was more of a spiritual Buddhist, and my dad was a non-practicing Catholic. 
I leaned more towards the spiritual Buddhist side, which may, basically means if you have a positive attitude in life, like that, that's about it. A positive attitude goes a long way, and who knows where you're going to go after you die. Having this positive way mindset only goes so far with joy because anything can make a good day go bad, depending on where your mind is at. Galatians 5.22 and 23a. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. True self-control is of the Holy Spirit. Everything outside of that is just suppressing your emotions and being in denial of situations that may come and go. For example, I was working at Lexus in March of 2018, and I got into a horrible car accident with a customer's car. And I felt so horrible for months. That was the first accident I've ever been in in my life. And it was really, it was just a disaster. And I thought I could never live down this situation. It would just never leave me. Even the police officer at the accident was comforting me, telling me that's why they call it an accident. But still I couldn't, I still decided to dwell in my self-pity. And having this positive mindset attitude just sunk me into a pit of loneliness, despair, sorrow. The lifestyle, this lifestyle had led me into a life of sin, which led to more sin, which led to worse sin. And my sin had become like an anchor that was tied to my ankle and I was just sinking into the depths of the ocean. My sin was a horrible burden. Romans 6, 23a, for the wages of sin is death. I felt that death within myself and within my family relationships. I knew, I never knew there would be a kind of redemption for me. I never knew of a person that I used to mock named Jesus Christ. I never knew anything. Um, really, I never thought much into him. My life was full of unanswered questions that led to, to depression and just an emptiness that was inside. As a young adult, I had no motivation to continue. I called it quits and just gave up on, on life. That night, I fell asleep and emotionally, mentally distraught. And in the morning, around 5 a.m. Christmas of 2018, I woke up to a televangelist on the TV saying, give your life to Jesus Christ, which uh, with such excitement in my soul, the answer to all of my life's problems was staring me in the face and saying, follow me. All the information of Jesus had flooded into my mind. Of his, I knew about a crucifixion, an ascension, a resurrection, but that was it. I didn't know what repentance was, but I knew I was living my life the wrong way. And I knew that he was the right way. I said the prayer of salvation, and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I knew that moment the anchor of guilt had been broken. Jesus took all my shame, guilt, and pain. I may have given up on myself, but Jesus never gave up on me. For three and a half years now, I have had the best relationship in my life. Jesus is my guide, my defender, my comforter, my best friend, my teacher, and at times he is the one who gently convicts me when I'm, when I'm about to sin or in sin, and if I may question if, if certain things are sin. The Lord is the one who led me to Grace Bible Chapel. In January of 2020, I was working in the morning shift at Costco, and eventually I met Frank Ta, 
who invited me to go to the Easter, um, to the Easter brunch at Grace Bible Chapel. And there we found true fellowship in the body of Christ. I do have an abundant life with Jesus Christ. I went from unanswered questions in my life to knowing the one who has all the answers to life. Now there still are challenges in my life, but I know I'll always have a savior to my life. Daily I read my Bible, seek the Lord, I pray and I pick up my cross to follow him. I have learned on my own efforts, I can do nothing without Christ, but with Christ I can do all things. John 15, four, remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit, there you can, unless you remain in me. This verse has become a reality to my relationship with Christ. Daily I fight with myself to read the Bible, deny myself and pick up his will, not mine. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. As long as I submit and am in the Lord's will, I, see, I do see him working in my life. I have come to experience God's grace in a way I've never known before. His goodness doesn't mean money or goods, but it means peace in the midst of disaster, comfort amongst sudden death of a parent, joy when, when I'm surrounded by sorrow. I can experience God's grace because Jesus is in me by the Holy Spirit, and I can live this abundant life because of what Jesus Christ has done on at the cross at Calvary for me. Thank you. Thanks, Nick, for having me reconsider this whole testimony. <laughs> <laughs> so my name is Peter Thomas. Uh, for those of you don't, that don't know, um, my family and uh, we grew up in, uh, in Hillview um, when I was uh, when I was four years old, me and my two sisters and my parents uh, moved to Mexico to be missionaries. So we, we went here and they, they went here for a while. But um, after we came back, we were still going to Hillview. We came back for a year and a half. And then um, when Grace needed help, my, my parents and my brother-in-law and my sister, they, went to, they started going to Grace. At first, I was kind of going to Hillview, but now I've been going to Grace for a couple years now. Um, so just, uh, let me see here. So like, I, as I said, I, I grew up in a missionary home. Um, we moved to a small town when I was four in 1996. Um, we moved to a small town not, not too far from Mexico City. Um, and although my parents were Christian missionaries, I just kind of remember those times like, you know, kind of like a lot of kids kind of remember. You kind of just went to church. I knew, I, I had a couple of songs. I was like, oh, I like like the way that one sounds. And I kind of knew the, the chorus, and I'm like, Dad, can we, can we sing this song? But it wasn't like it was a song that I was really singing to God. And I, I just was would listen to sermons or people talking, and it was a very, very small church in Mexico. And just, it really wasn't, there was nothing um, in my life that, that I was like, oh, like, I didn't I didn't deny God or anything like that. But if, if I, I would have said, like, oh, if somebody would have asked me, like, how do you get to heaven? Oh, believe in Jesus. And, and But I just, I didn't really believe it in my heart. And um, like, I didn't have anything against it, but I didn't have any personal relationship with Christ. 
um, when we moved back to the Bay Area, um, we stayed at a missionary apartment um, right by the Tidmarsh's house. And I remember I was kind of sleeping, and I looked at this re- looked up at this wreath, and it kind of, I, I don't know, when I was a little kid at night, it kind of looked like a demon's face. So it kind of, it made me think, you know, like wild imagination. It made me think of like, oh, you know, that, that like, if I die tonight, like if something happens, like, I, I won't go to heaven. And so I really, I prayed and repented of my sin. I prayed to the Lord and I knew that, that even though I was a missionary kid, just because of that, I wasn't getting into heaven. I had to have a personal conviction. And I don't know if that was the exact moment I got saved when I was 10, 11, 12. I was kind of praying every night like, oh, I hope the rapture doesn't, doesn't uh, get my parents and I'd check the room and stuff. But like God really, God really gave me assurance um, with some verses, and especially First John one nine, um, that says that if if you conf- if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive um, all our all our trespasses, all our iniquity. And um, let's see, in two thousand two, we moved back to um, Mexico, but much closer to the border, to the San Diego border. We moved to Ensenada, Baja California. Uh, lived there for 13 years, so a lot of my uh, childhood was was uh, spent there from nine till I was 22. Um, we were homeschooled, and um, through through high school, through the Bob Jones program, so it was a lot of um, like uh, videos, and there's all these materials. So really, uh, we I didn't really go to public school in Mexico, but besides when I went in second grade and kindergarten. So it was, my only social life really was, was going to, going to school. I mean, going, going to, um, church and like the sports I was involved in. So I liked playing little league baseball in Mexico and softball. But when I started going to, um, to, uh, college in, um, in Mexico, um, it, it was kind of, um, it was kind of just like my first time, just like um, my, my first uh, social experience, you know. So I kind of spent more time just hanging out and not really focusing on um, on grades. Um, honestly, let me see here. I I'd adapted like the popular mentality of just just getting by. Like, hey, if you pass, you're good. It wasn't about oh, I want to have the best GPA or the best grades. It was like, hey, if you pass your class, you're good. Um, and if you don't pass, well, it's engineering. It's everybody struggles with with engineering. I was I was studying bioengineering, and so people kind of had the mentality of like, you know, pass your class and you're good. And um, even though the classes, like I mentioned, calculus, organic chemistry, were difficult, were definitely difficult. But I knew God had given me a great mind, and I was kind of that I wasn't really using. I was kind of putting it to waste. Um, in 2015, my family was called back to the Bay Area. Um, Allison stayed behind because she was really close to being done. Um, but I still had like three years left, so I had to drop out of, of the Wabase, which is the local university down there. And I moved back to San Jose with my family. Um, so th- uh, through prayer and with the help from brothers like Alan Quo and Sanjay and others, um, I decided to join De Anza College, and I really liked my time at De Anza. Um, I, went in, I went in with the intention of continuing to pursue an engineering degree. 
Um, after a while though, I kind of lost interest. I remember there's this really hard physics class specifically and everybody's coming into office hours going, Hey, look at this and look at that. And I was just like, I just didn't feel any of the passion for, for physics anymore. And I kind of prayed about it and talked to my brother, Sanjay, and we prayed about it. And that was my brother-in-law, Sanjay, he's also my brother, but, uh, <laughs> he kind of encouraged me to pursue business because he's a business analyst and he said I had a mind for that. And I really, I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed the subjects that I've taken and it just made more practical sense than stuff you'd see in calculus or physics, kind of real world sense. So I've really not turned back. And um, let's see. And then so I was able to finish up by the grace of God um, during the COVID quarter. Um, I was able to, um, to finish my last few classes at, at the Enza. I, was, I did them all online, the last, the last three classes. It was just some accounting classes. And I was ready to transfer to San Jose State. Um, I just want to read a verse, um, Romans 8.28. If you could turn there. Let's see. It says that, and we know that God causes all things to work together for for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This verse really helped me during this pursuit um, of San Jose State because I kind of had some roadblocks. Um, sorry. Uh, it was a college I had my eye on um, ever since I started at Dienza. I knew a lot of people from church had gone there, had good experiences, including my own sister who got a nursing degree. One of my best buddies, Daniel, went there. Uh, I know he was, he, he was at UC San Diego, so it might have been like a, uh, you know, he, he, had, he was there at UC San Diego and then San, San Jose State, but hey, I, I can't shoot for UC San Diego, so I was shooting for San Jose State. <laughs> uh, I remember like the, the, I completed the somewhat lengthy process of submitting my applications. Uh, now all that was left was to, to do was to wait and pray. I remember checking the application status on the SJSU portal several times a week, only to read that my status was still pending. Eventually, I got my answer. Uh, it wasn't the answer I wanted or expected. My application had been withdrawn and was eligible for re redirection. It, it didn't sound like a full-on rejection, but it was definitely not good news. Um, that meant, so that kind of basically meant that my application could be redirected to other CSUs. Um, I eventually did like redirect it and got accepted to, to uh, CSU East Bay in Hayward. But I wasn't, I don't know, I, I didn't really know the East Bay. I didn't want to go all the way over there. And San Jose State was so much closer. So I tried to be optimistic in the beginning. And the first people I told were my parents. And they were very understanding, a very Christ-like example. I prayed and tried to understand if this might be the Lord's final answer. I even talked to a brother, uh, Scott Koppel, at church. And he's a college professor. And he was saying maybe consider, maybe just his advice was just maybe just be done. And that was tough to hear, but I kept praying about it because I really respect his opinion, but I just kept praying about it. Um, I took it to heart. Um, he's someone that I respect. And I prayed more about it with Sanjay during our discipleship. And he was, he's, he was very empathetic to my cause. I also spoke with a counselor. Um, uh, this guy, I don't know if he was a believer or not, but he just gave me like such a, sense of like, hey, don't worry, like things will work out. It was a De Anza counselor I'd never met before. We just talked on the phone and he was just, I, he, was a, he was one of the first people I think like, I really felt like 
it was so interesting because it wasn't a Christian, but he, I could really feel that God was using him in that situation. Um, and, and I knew that comfort came from the Lord. Uh, later on, it was suggested I reapply. I don't remember who said it, but I just never considered it, but to reapply to SJSU through Spartan Pathways, an alternative which I had previously cross, crossed off as too complicated. When I called, I was redirected to one of the heads of the program, who is Hispanic. Uh, we spoke Spanish on the call and really connected, making her more sympathetic to my cause. It was just a very natural conversation at a time that I was really nervous and just really made me see God's hand. Like, they put this person on, and she had a lot of, like, say and power in the, the decision-making. Um, they could have transferred me to anyone. She assured me that I had a very good chance of getting in as long as I submitted a letter of recommendation from a professor and my personal note. Sanjay and my father helped edit my personal note, and I felt confident in what I wrote, but the difficult part was getting a letter. With, sco with schools shut down due to COVID, the only way to reach former professors was through email. I tried to remember teachers at the end that I had a good relationship with. I emailed one, and she got back to me that never sent the letter in time. Some didn't respond. Later on, near the deadline, a teacher who I'd taken for accounting, but I'd gotten just C's. It was my final teacher that... I had just gotten C's and he was the final teacher, but we never met in person. But he just wrote it like, he wrote a letter like I was a valedictorian, basically. Like, <laughs> he made me look so good. And there was another guy who got an A, but he's kind of like, oh yeah, he's a good student. Like three sentences, didn't really put that much effort into it. But I was like, this was such a thoughtful letter that it, I could only see like the Lord's hand, like guiding him to write this letter. It was just like so thoughtful and, and awesome. Um, I was admitted uh, conditionally. I didn't really know what that meant. Uh, my friend Daniel assured me that if I didn't do anything, I didn't do anything dumb, <laughs> I was in. And uh, I just thank God for the many ways he showed his hand in, in this big moment in my life. I found that God, like the psalmist writes, will accomplish what concerns me. He is a risen Lord and actually cares about my contemporary goals, and he cares where I go to college in 2021 and beyond. Just to wrap up, this experience showed me a Christ that is alive and risen. Uh, the cross is a great reminder of his love and ability to blot out all sins forever, but we must remember that Jesus didn't stay there. My circumstances, like the desire to pursue an education, may seem to, to some to be extremely trivial to the Lord of the universe, but I saw him act in ways very specific to my situation. He's outside of time, yet he was right there with me in that moment. Thank you, Lord, for eternal and abundant life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for just this time of, of testimonies and just how you worked in Arlena and Nick's life and just all the changes that, that you uh, have shown, Lord, just contrasts of lives and just so many ways that you've worked in so many people's lives in very specific ways. I just want to thank you for that. In Jesus' name. So just uh, under two weeks ago, my mom left to India. Um, she's probably watching this. Um, so <laughs> you to be careful about what I say here. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so when, when she left, um, you know, we expected her to have this huge list of things for us to get done or do, take care of while she was gone. But she only had one thing. And that one thing was to take care of these tomato plants that we have planted out front. <laughs> Okay, it sounds silly, but these tomato plants have a very special significance to our family and specifically to my mom and I. 
You see, these tomato plants, we grew them from seeds. And these are like the first plants which we've ever successfully taken from a seed to a sprout. And now there are these three foot, four foot tall bushes and they have tons of tomatoes. Um, and so, mom, if you're watching this, plants are doing okay. <laughs> yeah. So, in the same way which my mom asked me to take care of these tomatoes, just these little plants, I want you to imagine that you are in a room with God, that you're, you're sitting here and God is sitting or standing right here and he's looking at you and he gives you something, whatever it might be. And he gives you this and he says, take care of this. How would you treat that item? You know, for me, I know that that would become first priority. Priority number one, that would be the only thing which I would take care of for the next few weeks. Everything else is off the, off the list. Today, I want to read from a, from a verse in Colossians chapter 4, Colossians 4 verse 17. And just to give you all a little bit of context as you flip there, um, Colossians 4 verse 17, right at the end of the book, um, and Paul is finishing up his letter to the church at Colossae. And in these last few verses, um, he's writing these very specific requests and commands to very specific people. And in this verse, he's writing to this man named Archippus. So Colossians 4, verse 17. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Let's just read that again. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. So just to give you a little bit of context about who Archippus was, who is this guy Archippus? Archippus is believed to be the son of Philemon, um, and clearly, with what limited context we have about him, um, he had some ministry which was in the church at Colossae, and it's also believed that he was involved with the church in Laodicea, which met in Philemon's house. Regardless, he had a ministry, and Paul was encouraging him to take heed and fulfill this ministry. So there's these two phrases which Paul uses in this one verse, which I think illustrate this entire point which he's trying to convey to Archippus. And it's just as applicable to us as it was to Archippus a few thousand years ago. And that is take heed and fulfill. Take heed and fulfill. Let's start with take heed. So taking heed, I often think of it as hearing. We take heed to the words of the Lord, take heed to wisdom, take heed to our mom telling us to take out the trash on Sundays. Um, so taking heed, hearing is a very, very good definition. Vine's Dictionary, which looks into the definitions of the Greek words that the Bible was originally written in, um, helps illustrate this idea of taking heed a little. Um, Vine's defines taking heed as to look or to see. And he notes that it usually implies more than just looking or seeing. It implies an intense or intent, earnest contemplation. And he also notes that taking heed implies action. So what does taking heed to the ministry which we have received in the Lord actually mean? What does that look like? I think that taking heed to our ministry means looking after and looking after this ministry which God has given to us. Just like in the example at the beginning, God has given all of us a specific ministry. He's given us specific gifts, ministries, and goals that he wants us to accomplish. And we are called to take heed and look after these gifts and ministries. Each believer in the church has a specific and unique function. As noted in 1 Corinthians, each believer has a specific gift, not for their own good, but rather for the common good of the church. 
And the unique function that each believer has is not the one that we choose. It's not one that we pick and say, this is the gift that I want to have, God, give this to me. Rather, God gives us these gifts. He has specifically chosen these gifts for us, and he wants us to fulfill the gifts that we are given, not the ones that we choose. And sometimes it's hard to let go of these ministries and these gifts that we've attached ourselves to or assumed. Sometimes we see other people with these gifts and we think, man, it would be so cool if I could do just that gift, have that ministry. But God calls us to not look for other people's ministries, but look after the ministry which he has given us personally. Let's go on to fulfilling. Fulfilling our ministry. You know, whenever I think of, uh, of this concept, I think of when we go back to India and we go back to the city of Bangalore um, and there's this half of the city, which is just this, there's a lot of buildings there and a lot of the buildings, they have scaffolding and they're, you know, kind of half built. They don't have windows in yet. They don't have appliances yet. And they're just kind of like buildings. They're not livable buildings. And so there are these apartment buildings that were built before the builders actually thought about how they would do plumbing and how they would do all of these various things that are needed for an apartment complex. And so really these buildings are just useless. They're not useful for living in because they're just unsafe to live in. And really, they inhibit the use of the land that they occupy, too. So in this way, I think Christ calls us to not fulfill our ministry. This is a good example of how God calls us to not fulfill our ministry. Because God calls us to fulfill our ministry by filling it to the fullest. That's the definition of the word fulfilling. <laughs> so fulfillment, I think, is also important that it's not just a one-time checkpoint that we get to and God gives us a little green check mark and says, okay, you're done, you're released from all of your responsibilities, go on and you can do whatever you want. Rather, it's a continual daily and it's just a constant affair, something that we constantly have to be fulfilling. Ministries are not something that has a one-time thing. It's a constant fulfillment. One last thing which I think is just really interesting in this verse is that fulfillment is contingent on heeding. In the verse, Paul puts taking heed before fulfilling. Take heed to the ministries which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. And this brings up the point that we need to be taking heed to God's calling in our ministry before we can even start to fulfill them. Without heeding, it's impossible to fulfill the ministry. And taking heed and fulfilling, they require perseverance. It's not easy. You know, going back to the example of the tomatoes, by far the hardest time in the cycle of growing tomatoes is not when they're, you know, waiting for the fruits to ripen or anything like that. It's when you plant the seed and when you water it and you don't see any sprouts. And you look at the, the little cup with the seed in it and you wonder, did the seed die? Should I dig it up? You know, did, what's happening, you know? But there are these little roots that are coming out of the seed and they're building the plant from the bottom up. And so in the same way, God calls us to persevere and to continue fulfilling our ministries, even when we can't see tangible or visible results in the way that we think that they should happen. In conclusion, taking heed and fulfilling, just as applicable to you and I as it was to Archippus thousands of years ago. Taking heed is not only identifying the ministry which God has assigned us, but taking action upon that calling. And once again, this gift is not a gift that we choose, but rather one that we are called to do. And this requires unhesitating, 
unquestioning and unconditional obedience and trust. And that's really hard for us as humans, but God calls us to do just that. And fulfilling, fulfilling the work which we have been called to do. Are we falling off or are we focusing on gifts that we don't have, that other people have, that we think that we want? The question for us today is as we go about our lives and as we try and get involved with our ministries and try to fulfill them, is when we are standing in heaven before God, God himself, and he is looking at us, will we be able to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant? Let's pray. God, I thank you for this reminder uh, of how we are supposed to take heed and fulfill the ministries which you have given us. Lord, I pray that as we go throughout our daily lives that you would be um, presenting these opportunities um, and that, that you would be making those opportunities clear to us for how we can do just that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.